We will be looking at Job chapters 34 and 35 this afternoon, and I'll read chapter 35. Moreover, Elihu answered and said, Do you think this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, What advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your companions with you. Look to the heavens and see, and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you, and your righteousness a son of man. Because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to empty talk, nor will the Almighty regard it. Although you say you do not see him, yet justice is before him, and you must wait for him. And now, because he has not punished in his anger, nor taken much notice of folly, therefore Job opens his mouth in vain. He multiplies words without knowledge. Let's ask for God's blessing. Our gracious God and our Father, we ask that you will be with us tonight, that you will instruct us in the way of righteousness, that you will Show us your majesty and glory so that we may tremble before you and adore your greatness and submit ourselves to you rather than rebelling against you or challenging you or speaking wicked words against you. Help us, Lord, to become conformed to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. All right, last time we looked at Job chapters 32 and 33. That was the first part of Elihu's speech. And we saw that after the introduction, Elihu addressed himself in chapter 32 to the friends of Job uh, and explained really why he was going to uh, join in uh, their conversation. They had, in his judgment, not adequately answered Job. And then in chapter 33, he talked to Job, and he made accusations against Job and sought to begin, at least, the process of correcting Job. Now, in chapter 34, Elihu begins by talking to wise men. Verse 2, Hear my words, you wise men. Give ear to me, you who have knowledge. Now, there are two possibilities there. Some think that he is talking to Job's three friends. And he is calling them somewhat ironically because he has just accused them of not answering Job adequately. Uh, He is calling them wise men. But others think that there were probably other people sitting by, perhaps even the elders of the city, and that Elihu here calls upon these others who are sitting by to um, listen to his words and to assess with him 
in this situation, who speaks righteously? There's probably no way of telling for sure to whom he is speaking. But that is at least the first part of this chapter. He's talking to these wise men, whoever they are. And that takes us through verse 15 of chapter 34. Then in chapter, in the same chapter, verse 16, he talks to Job. And you can tell that because in verses 16 and 17, the yous become singular, as we've seen this before. Uh, and this is the only marker, really, of the change from uh, one to another uh, part of the conversation. When he says, if you have understanding, he's talking to Job. If you look at the King James, it would be thee and thou that they have here. And verse 17, will you, that is, will Job condemn him who is most just? So there he talks to Job, and that goes down through verse 33. And then verse 34 to 37, the end of the chapter, he again talks to the wise men, uh, or about wise men, but probably to the wise men as well. When he says, Job speaks without knowledge, his words are without wisdom. And finally, then in chapter 35, Elihu again addresses Job, and that conversation is throughout that chapter. And he continues, in fact, in chapters 36 and 37, also to address Job. Now these two chapters, which we're looking at tonight, chapters 34 and 35, are the second and third parts of Elihu's speech. You remember we noted last time that there were four parts. Chapter 1, which is kind of the introduction to the whole of Elihu's speech. Chapter uh, 34, where you have this marker. Elihu further answered and said, chapter 35 is the same kind of marker. Moreover, Elihu answered and said, and chapter 36 has it again. Elihu also proceeded and said. So four parts, and we're looking at two tonight. Let's look first then at the first 15 verses of the chapter in which Elihu addresses these wise men. And he, in verses 2 to 4, then calls on these wise men to listen to him and to judge what he has to say and to decide who it is who is right in this whole Uh, conversation that's been going on. Hear my words, you wise men, give ear to me, you who have knowledge. For the ear tests words, that is, assess and judge what I say as the palate tastes foods, food. And let us choose justice for ourselves. Let us know among ourselves what is good. So he's basically saying you have to make a choice here. Is Job right? Are his friends right? Or am I right? And I want you to choose justice. And obviously Elihu thinks he is the one who is speaking justice and good here. Then in verses 5 and 6, he, he summarizes what Job has been saying. Very briefly, he summarizes. Job has said, I am righteous. That's the first thing. That was certainly true. Job has more than once in his conversation with his friends said, I am righteous, I have not sinned. But God has taken away my justice. And again, that was something Job had explicitly said. God has taken away my justice. 
Thirdly, Job had said, I won't go back on what I've said. Should I lie concerning my right? I'm not going to um, deny my righteousness and make myself a liar by doing that. And fourthly, Job has said, my wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. That is, God has afflicted me, and I do not believe that I will see a recovery from this trouble that I am in. He may be speaking about his physical condition. God is destroying him, basically, he says, physically destroying him with this disease and with all the uh, weight of troubles that have come on him. He may be also talking about his spiritual condition. I'm spiritually wounded, cut off from God. He has become my enemy, and this uh, wound, spiritual wound, is an incurable wound. I do not believe that God will heal me and restore me again to his favor, at least not while life lasts. But then in verses 7 to 9, Eliphaz makes his accusation against Job. So he's summed up, and I think he summed up accurately in verses 5 and 6 what Job has to say, and in verses 7 to 9 he says, and here's the problem with what he's been saying. He's been talking wickedness. He drinks scorn like water. He's he's mocking God, and he's mocking God like wicked men. He, He goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men. I don't think he means here that Job is actually keeping physical company with wicked men, but that spiritually his words indicate that his his walk is with them rather than with the righteous. He mocks God with his words because, he says, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Now there have been some who have questioned whether that's really an honest appraisal of what Job has said. I don't think you will find precisely those words in what Job has said. It's it's something of an interpretation or a conclusion drawn from Job's words, but it's probably not far off the mark. Uh, Christopher Ash, in his discussion of the verse, points to uh, Job 9, verse 22, where Job says, It is all one thing. Therefore I say, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. God does the same to both the blameless and the wicked. And you could certainly conclude from that, well, there's no profit in righteousness. And Elihu says, that's the wickedness that Job has done. He says the same thing that the wicked say. He says there's no profit in righteousness. There's no profit in delighting in God. So that's his accusation against Job in this chapter. And then in verses 10 to 15, Elihu proceeds to explain the righteousness of God. In other words, he justifies God rather than Job. You remember he had thought that Job was justifying himself rather than God. Well, Elihu wants to justify God rather than Job, and he uh, does that or attempts to do that in verses 10 to 15. In the first place, he recoils in, I think, horror from what Job has said. 
Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. You charge God with taking away your justice. Well, that's really the same thing as charging God with wickedness. Far be it from him. I can't imagine God doing any such thing. No man should try to imagine God doing any such thing. You should not, he's saying, impugn the justice of God. He repays man according to his work and makes man to find a reward according to his way. Now when you read that, that sounds, doesn't it, like uh, Job's friends. That's the same point that Job's friends kept making to Job. God pays the wicked back according to their work, and he pays the righteous according to their work. But of course, uh, the friends were taking that truth, and it was truth, and misapplying it to Job and saying, that means that you have sinned, because the Almighty would never do such a thing to anyone who had not sinned. That's not Elihu's point, however. And Elihu's point is, God is, is simply, God is just. He does not do wickedness. He does not commit iniquity. Let's start, he says, with this fundamental truth. We don't need to apply it to you, Job, at this point, except to say, when you accuse God of taking away your justice, then you are doing something that is contrary to that truth. God does not do iniquity. He repays man according to his work. So he has a different way of applying that truth to Job. Not you must have sinned, and that explains your affliction. But you may not accuse the Almighty of being unrighteous. And in verses 12 and following then, he talks about how God judges justly. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. And notice, and I, I think it's a key part of understanding this, uh, this book and this argument of, of Elihu, that his basic reason for saying God will not pervert justice is simply he is the Almighty nor will the Almighty pervert justice. And he goes on to argue that line then in verse 13. Who gave him charge over the earth, or who appointed him over the whole world? That is, God has sovereignty over the whole world, and no one appointed him to that position. He is the exalted one. There's no one above him who, who gave him that charge. He is that ruler of the world, simply because of who he is. And it is impossible to speak of him then, the Almighty, as one who would pervert justice. You, you can't talk that way. He combines then this idea of the sovereignty of God with the justice of God, and he says they go hand in hand. They're inseparable. If he should set his heart on it, if he should go, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. This 
God has this kind of power, and it's not impossible, therefore, because of who he is, the Almighty, to imagine him committing any injustice. He stands, then, beyond all possibility of unrighteousness, of committing unrighteousness, and he stands as God beyond all human power or right to question or accuse him of unrighteousness. That's a strong rebuke to Job. You may not talk that way about God, is basically what he's saying. Or he's saying this to the people, the wise men there, and saying Job may not talk that way. But what we've seen then is that in verse 16, he begins to talk to Job. And here he basically continues with that same theme, that you, Job, may not question, impugn the justice of God. I think, again, that Christopher Ashe's analysis of the rest of this chapter is, is helpful. He says, first of all, in verses 17 to 20, uh, Joe, or Elihu is arguing that God is absolutely impartial in his judgment. That's the first point he makes. God is just because he is absolutely impartial in his justice. Should one who hates justice govern, will you condemn him who is most just? And I think you should also see a connection here with the verse 15, or verses 13 to 15. He's uh, united the sovereignty and, and justice of God, and here he's carrying right on with that idea with Job, and he says, if God were really unjust, he wouldn't govern. He would not be in the position he is. Will you condemn him who is most just? He's the, the ruler of heaven and earth. You cannot condemn such a one. You may not condemn such a one as well as you cannot. Is it fitting to say to a king even, here he's, he takes it down to the earthly level, is it fitting for you, Job, to say even to a king you are worthless and to nobles you are wicked? You better be very careful before you talk about kings and nobles in that kind of way. And yet, he says, God is not, in, not partial to princes. You have to be careful, Job. But God is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor. They are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die, in the middle of the night, the people are shaken and pass away. And notice again, the mighty are taken away without a hand, that is, without uh, human assistance and without God's hand necessarily even appearing directly. So God does these things, and he doesn't show partiality in his judgment. He treats rich and poor alike. He treats kings the same way he treats those who have no power and no position at all on earth. He is absolutely impartial in his justice. Secondly, verses 21 uh, to 25 or so, he knows everything. 
so that his judgment is perfect. His eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. There's nothing hidden from him. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. And in fact, this is so true, he says, that when a man finally comes before God in judgment, God doesn't even need to ask any questions or do any further investigation. He knows everything the man has done when he steps before him in justice. He need not further consider a man that he should go before God in judgment. He breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry. He doesn't need to make inquiry. It's all there in his mind, in his presence already. And he then, having broken these men, these mighty men, without inquiry, sets others in their place. This is how his justice works. He knows their works, he overthrows them in the night, and they are crushed. Then you get an idea in verse 26 that this is also done publicly. He strikes them as wicked men in the open sight of others. That is, his justice is not done in a corner. It's not done in darkness. It's not done out of the sight of men. He he executes his justice where all can see it and where all can understand that this is indeed justice that he is doing. And he does it based on their sins. Verses 27 and 28, because they turned back from him and would not consider any of his ways so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him. For he hears the cry of the afflicted. Now, verses 29 and 30 are a little bit more difficult, I think. But the basic idea here is that if God uh, does not execute immediate justice, if he hides his face, or if it seems to us that his justice is not really what it should be, then how can we question him? When he gives quietness, who then can make trouble? And when he hides his face, who then can see him? That is, if he should hide from us, withdraw, as it were, from the courtroom, and not give us an opportunity to question him, who can bring him back, who can see him, who can make trouble with him. And this is true whether it's against a nation, if he, whether he's exercised his justice against a nation or a single man. He may judge a whole nation, and yet we cannot call him to account for what he has done. And if he's done it with a man, that same is true. He does these things, again, I think he goes back to the justice of God. He does these things that the hypocrite should not reign, lest the people be ensnared. So his justice is perfect justice again, even when he judges nations. Now verses 31 to 33, then, have to be taken, I think, all together. You shouldn't try to separate these verses or, or say that there's different points being made here. It's all one point that he's making. And what he's imagining here is that someone 
has borne chastening. And he has borne this chastening because he has sinned against God. And he now acknowledges that he has sinned. I have borne chastening. And he says, I will offend no more. So he's promising amendment of his life. And he even says, verse 32, if there's still sin in me that I don't see, show it to me, teach me what I do not see. And if you find more sin, if if I have done iniquity, I'll promise also reformation in that. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. So he's imagining this situation in which a man is saying, uh, I have sinned. And then verse 33, he says, now, on what terms is there going to be reconciliation? Is there going to be uh, justice done to you in this setting? Should he repay it according to your terms? See what he's saying? You're in this setting. You've confessed your sin. You're saying, I'm not going to sin again. And now, Eli, he says, well, are you now going to say to God, I've done this. Um, let me set the terms of our reconciliation. Here's, and you see how foolish that is. You have disavowed your sin just because you disavowed it. Now are you going to say, well, then I can set the terms of my reconciliation. It's not God who sets the terms of my reconciliation. And he's kind of, I think, implying that Job, if he hasn't actually done this, has come close to doing this. Job has said, God owes me reconciliation because I am righteous, but he has taken away my justice. It's on Job's terms that this has reconciliation is going to take place, Job thinks. And Elijah says, no, that's not how things work. But you, Job, have to choose who's right here, not I. Therefore, speak what you know. Then in verses 34 to 37, Elihu talks again about the wise men, and I think to the wise men who are there too. Men of understanding say to me, wise men who listen to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without wisdom. So Job has talked foolishly. And therefore, verse 36, Job must be tried to the utmost. I think this is an implied rebuke to Job's friends. You remember, they withdrew from the argument because Job was convinced that he was righteous. And the friends were not persuaded of his statement. They simply decided it would be silent and God would have to deal with this. And Elihu says, no, no, we can't do that. Job must be tried to the utmost because his answers are like those of wicked men. He adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. We can't just let him off the hook, he says. He has done something which needs to be dealt with. And undoubtedly, Elihu is thinking about Job's own well-being. He's saying we can't abandon him to this wickedness that he has done. 
We must seek to recover him. We must try him to the utmost of our power. We must keep on arguing with him. So that's the chapter 34. Then in the third part of his speech, chapter 35, as we've said, he talks again to Job. I think the basic point here in this chapter is that he's making a charge against Job, and the charge against Job is that Job expects to be rewarded for his righteousness, as if he had merited something from God. Do you think this is right, he says to Job, do you say, my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? So first of all, my righteousness is more more than God's. And I think that's a, a fair conclusion to draw from what Job has said. Job has said, I'm righteous. God has treated me unrighteously. At least in these present circumstances, my righteousness, Job has said, is more than God's. And he has even implied, at least if he's not said it directly, what advantage will it be to me to be righteous? What uh, advantage, what profit will I have more than if I had committed sin? Doesn't God then, isn't the implication seems to be, doesn't God then owe me something because of my righteousness? Doesn't he owe me decent treatment? Now that's the same thing that Elihu had said in chapter 34, verse 9. Notice the words are very similar. Chapter 34, verse 9, It profits a man nothing that he should delight in God, or what profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? But in chapter 34, Elihu had been talking to the wise men, remember, in verse 9. Job said this, he says to the wise men, and now he makes the accusation directly to Job's face. He says, this is what you said. What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? And his answer is, first of all, verses 4 to 8, God is not under any obligation to you. I will answer you and your companions with you. Look to the heavens and see, and behold the clouds, they are higher than you. And the implication is God is exalted above the clouds. He is enthroned on the heavens. So he's higher even than those clouds. He's higher than you. He's appealing again to that sovereignty of God, that almighty power of God as the answer to Job's problem. And he says, if you sin, what do you accomplish against him? What harm do you do to God when you sin? What damage do you do to him when you sin? If your transgressions are multiplied, that is, if you sin and sin and sin and sin unendingly, still what do you do to him? What harm do you do to him? You can't touch him with your sins. And if you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? What does your righteousness do for him? How how does he profit from your righteousness? What gain does he get from your righteousness? And if he he doesn't get any gain from your righteousness, then don't claim that he's under obligation to you because you have acted righteously. 
your wickedness affects a man such as you and your righteousness, a son of man, but it doesn't affect God. God is under no obligations to you at all. And so you may not say, what profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? And then in the rest of the chapter, I think he makes three additional points. And again, verses 9 to 13 are a little bit difficult. And again, I think we have to imagine that Elihu is is describing a, a theoretical situation in which certain men cry out for help in oppression and trouble. Because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. And he says, these are, these are men then, let's just imagine, these are men who do not say in their trouble, where is God my maker? They don't acknowledge their creator, who gives songs in the night, that is, who, who gives so many good things, and who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven, that is, who has exalted us in, among his creatures, on earth and given to us wisdom. They, they don't ask these questions. They don't say these things. They don't look to God, their maker, in their trouble. There they cry out, he says, but because of the way they cry out, he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to empty talk, nor will the Almighty Regard it. And again, I think there's kind of suggestion here. Job, aren't you acting sort of like these men? You're not acknowledging God, your maker. You're kind of saying, I'm righteous, but God is not. Maybe not quite that bluntly, but isn't that really what you're saying? And are you then not falling into the category of these persons who do not say, where is God my maker? And yet you want God to treat you better than what he has done in the past. Then in verse 14, he says, God is just, but, Sometimes you'll have to wait for that justice. Although you say you do not see him, his justice is before him. It's coming, and you must wait for him. That is, don't expect immediate justice. Don't say, because you don't get immediate justice, that God is not just. Wait for him. And then there's a warning, I think, in verses 15 and 16. And his warning is basically this, you have spoken boldly and sinfully against God, and God has not yet punished you for that sinful talk. Do not think, then, that you can go even farther in your accusations against him. Do not be like the wicked who say, I've sinned and God does nothing, I can Sin with impunity. I can go right on in my way and not worry about God judging me. 
Don't be like that. And now because he has not punished in his anger nor taken much notice of folly, therefore Job opens his mouth in vain. He multiplies words without knowledge. He really accuses Job then of actually doing that because God has been silent, emboldening himself in his sin. Now I think it's interesting at this point to go back and look at the various accusations that Elihu has made against Job. If you go back to chapter 32, the first thing we read about Elihu's assessment of Job is that Job justified himself rather than God. That's 32 verse 2. We talked about that last week. The second thing he says against Job is, in chapter 33, verses 9 to 11. And what Job has said is, I am innocent, but God finds occasions against me. Then in chapter 34, verse 5, he sums up Job's words by saying, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. And finally, in chapter 34, verse 9, he says, It profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. And he repeats that, as we've seen in chapter 35, verse 3. So he has, he's, he's basically said four things about Job. He justifies himself rather than God. He says, I am innocent. God finds occasions against me. He says, God has taken away my justice. And he says, it profits a man nothing if he is righteous. And Elihu's corrections of Job are, Job, first, you've got your priorities wrong. You should be justifying God rather than yourself. Secondly, you are unrighteous in accusing God. God is great, greater than you are. Not only that, but he chastises men to keep them from sin and to save them from the power of sin. That's in chapter 33, verse 28. Not only 28, but especially there. He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit, and his life shall see the light. So God has a saving purpose in his chastisement, which you are neglecting. Then, Job, in saying this, you are really joining in with wicked men. What man is like Job, chapter 34, verses 7 and 8, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? And finally, he says to Job, God is under no obligation to you whatsoever. Your righteousness does not merit anything with him. That's an exceedingly important point. I think especially, in fact, the, the first, second, and fourth of these points is, are very important. You justify God, or you justify yourself rather than God. That's wrong. That's backwards. You must justify God first. Secondly, the answer to your um, complaint about God taking away your justice is, God is great. You may not accuse the Almighty of injustice. And thirdly, 
God is under no obligation to repay your righteousness as you think he should. Strong points to make to anyone who accuses God of injustice. And then a couple of warnings that he gives to Job as well. First of all, wait for him. You may not see his justice immediately. Wait for him. He will be just. He is just. And secondly, do not let his silence and the delay of his justice encourage and embolden you in your sins. Because the time is coming when he will deal with them. These are all powerful lessons also for us. May God bless us with his word.